Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way. And then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place. Um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Welcome to the Gardens Podcast. This message titled The Call to the Table was given by Darren Roundson and is the ninth in our series, The Kingdom. Good morning, guys. My name is Darren. I am one of the pastors here. And we are in the middle of a series called The Kingdom, following Jesus in times of chaos. And if you're new with us, we have been looking over the last few weeks, about seven weeks now, I think, at Jesus' primary message. His primary message was that the kingdom of God is at hand, that the reign of God, which is marked by healing, shalom, justice, peace, forgiveness, the resurrected of the dead, all of these things are present realities that we as disciples are invited to participate in this extension of the kingdom. And so every week we have been teaching through the gospel of Mark, um, going verse by verse, trying to get a biblical understanding for this kingdom concept. And, uh, and we're here today kind of continuing in Mark. We're going to do an Advent series starting next week, preparing us for Christmas. But if you would, um, would you grab a Bible? We're going to dive into Mark chapter 2, verse 13. If you, do, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the Bibles on the sides, or you could uh, take that home if you don't have a Bible at all. I encourage you to have a Bible, bring it with you, take notes, and read about what we're up to here. Last week, Bill talked about Jesus healing the paralytic. 
And in this uh, very controversial story, Jesus is confronted by these four men who dig through a thatched roof to get their paralytic friend to Jesus, where Jesus, almost in a humorous way, says to the man after he breaks Peter's house, breaks his roof, he says, your sins are forgiven. And it's almost like people would have been laughing. It's not, the guy wasn't expecting his sins to be forgiven. He was expecting healing. And so there's some controversy that comes up because only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, well, so that you know I have the authority to forgive sins, he does something unthinkable. He heals the paralytic and signifying that he, in fact, has the power at his disposal to forgive anyone he pleases. And so people are left after that story in just this amazing, perplexed state where he, he heals his paralytic and he forgives him. And it's kind of like, who is this person? Who is this rabbi, prophet, Yahweh? Who is this, this Messiah? And we pick up from that story in Mark chapter 2, verse 13. So if you would go to Mark chapter 2, verse 13, I'll read this. <clears throat> Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus begins uh, walking again at the sea. And Mark uses very unique language. I want to get through and talk about what's happening. Um, but Mark says immediately that, that Jesus goes through the lake. He's walking around the lake and a large crowd follows him. And this is a different word for crowd. The word comes from a Hebrew phrase called people of the land, which is this Greek understanding of a, a very type of crowd, a very particular type of people. It's a lower, uneducated class of people that's following Jesus. And so, so Jesus is following, and he just begins to teach this crowd, these uneducated, ignorant people to the law. And he, he stumbles upon Levi, who we know as Matthew, the, the gospel writer Matthew, a tax collector. Now, there are two types of tax collectors in the first century. The first tax collector is someone that collects your income tax or poll tax. The second, which is hated even more than the other tax collector, is a customs official. And the custom official would be sitting in booths at canals, over bridges, in the entrance to the cities. They'd be sitting um, at, uh, next to state roads. And if you wanted to cross the bridge or if you wanted to enter into the city, you had to pay a, a tax. You had to pay a poll, a toll, excuse me. And so these two types of tax collectors, both of them worked for the Roman Empire. And if you were in Israel, the Roman Empire was the enemy. And so if a Jew, which Levi is, entered in to the service of tax collecting, he was immediately despised by all of the Jewish community. If you entered in as a Jew to the service of tax collecting, you were immediately excommunicated from the temple and you couldn't worship God. 
You were no longer able to participate in fellowship. You were no longer able to enjoy the presence of God himself. You were no longer able to have relationship with God. Your basic civil duties were stripped away. You couldn't be a witness in the court. You couldn't be a judge in the court system. You were considered corrupt. You were considered an enemy of the state. If one person from your family became a tax collector, your entire extended family were, were considered disgraced. Levi is a tax collector. He's a Jewish tax collector. I'm sure people would have called him a Roman conspirator. There's rabbinic writing that, that um, categorizes tax collectors with the same category as murderers and thieves in the first century. You, you are the worst of the worst in, this, in, this, in that context. I mean, to be categorized as a murderer and a thief is pretty bad. And so you just got, you just got to see what's going on. Jesus is walking around with this, this poor class. He's already got some disciples who we already know, you know, they were fishermen. They didn't make the Jewish country. Remember the Jewish system? We've talked about this before. The Jewish education system, there's three, three types of schools. And if, if someone was a fisherman, they obviously didn't make the cut to become a disciple. But Jesus calls fishermen to be his disciples. And here's Jesus again, walking around the lake. And he calls Levi, a Jewish tax collector, a Roman conspirator, someone that would have been classified as a murderer in the first century. And Jesus says to him what he said to the fishermen, I believe you can be like me. Follow me. Jesus tells this, the worst kind of person that you're invited, not just to be a follower, but to be my disciple. You're invited to be in the inner circle. So all of a sudden, this group of disciples that begin to follow Jesus, these half kind of JV team, the people that didn't make the cut, the fishermen, the roughnecks, these, now, now there's some pretty serious players. These are heathens. These are the types of people you wouldn't want on your church board. Jesus says, no, come in. Follow me. What does Levi do? Levi leaves everything that would define him as a person. And he follows Jesus. And then what does, what does he do? Levi throws a party. I love this story. Levi throws a party, and he simply invites his friends. So here this guy is, this tax collector. He finds out now he's going to be following this cool new rabbi who's been healing people, forgiving sins. He's totally controversial. Now, now Levi's invited into the inner circle. I'm sure some of the other disciples didn't want him, but hey, the disciples, Jesus, they're hanging out with Levi at his house, enjoying a meal, it says. And Mark writes that there's a certain type of people there. You have a, a certain type of crowd. On one hand, you have Levi and all of his friends, which, which Mark calls sinners and tax collectors. And you've got to love Mark because the word sinner is not somebody who is breaking the moral code. In this particular phrase, the word sinner is a technical term. It's a term to describe the Hebrew concept, people of the land. Catch what's going on. Jesus is hanging out at a party, and, and he's hanging out with the sinners, the people that are outcasts. These are the social types that don't pay tithes. They don't go to church regularly or to the temple courts regularly. They don't follow the clean, the, the clean laws, the cleanliness laws. 
or all the traditions. They don't separate themselves from everyone else. So, so it says in Mark's gospel that, that Jesus is, is with his disciples because there's a bunch of followers, and he's eating with the sinners. And then you have the opposite extreme. You have the Pharisees. You, you just got to see the tension. The Pharisees are just looking in at Jesus and what he's doing. They're testing him. They want to know who this guy is, what he's about. They're kind of, you know, they're, they're the rule stick. They're making sure that this guy's legit or not. And so here they are. They're watching him. And the Pharisees, who were they? They were the, the religious, uh, the devout Jewish people. They were elitists. They thought that holiness was obedience, strict, rigorous obedience to the Torah, the law. And they followed it to the T. They thought that in order to be holy, you had to separate yourselves from anything that's unclean. You had to separate yourselves in every way. They added thousands of laws on top of all, all the Levitical and Mosaic laws. They made it impossible to be holy. They made it impossible to be devout. You had to follow everything to the T. And they were known for three very distinct types of rules. One was table fellowship. They had strict rules for what it meant to sit and dine at a table. The second was public piety, and the third was strict obedience to Sabbath. So here you have this amazing scene. Jesus is right in the middle of this controversy. He set, takes in Levi as his disciple. Levi throws a party. You have sinners and tax collectors enjoying. You have Jesus reclining at the table with all of these guys. And on the outside looking in, you have these religious folks that say, this isn't okay. And so they question among themselves, question to his disciples, why... Is he eating with the tax collectors? Why is he eating with the sinners? To the Pharisee, the dinner table represents so much more than just a meal. To the, for the, to the first century Jew and to the Orthodox Jew today, you would never in a million years eat a meal with somebody that you didn't fully embrace. The dinner table was a statement. If a Jewish person sat down in your home to have a meal with you, he was, it was a statement, it was a proclamation. It was an announcement that you fully embraced that person that you're eating with. That you fully accepted who they are. Catch this. If you had a meal in the first century as a Jew at someone's house, you are saying, I extend my peace to you. We have peace between us. To the, to the, to the Pharisee, it says in rabbinic literature, if you wanted to be a Pharisee, and, and there's, a, there's a great line, it says, if a Pharisee wanted to keep himself pure, it says, and I quote, never recline at the table with people of the land. Something's going on. Something's stirring. Jesus reclines at the table and the Pharisees can't handle it because it can only mean two things. If Jesus was truly a teacher of the law, then he would know better. He would know better not to, to mess around, not to invite people into your discipleship group, not to sit at the table with these sorts of people. He, he's not a teacher of the law then, they're thinking. He should know better. 
because of what the table represents. He, he, he would know better. He can't do this. Jesus can't hang out with these types of people. He can't just sit and dine with sinners. They're, they're unclean. They're unholy. They're not obeying Yahweh, the Lord. So it means that he's not, he's not who he says he is. Or, and I think this is what they're catching on to, it means something even greater than that. It's exactly what it means. That this, in fact, is the Messiah sitting at the table with sinners, making a, an extreme statement that he forgives. That he, in fact, where, where the temple and religion has said, you are excommunicated, he says, pass the salt. Where they have been excluded from fellowship, he enters in on their terms to the greatest statement of all, I embrace you as you are, not as you should be. So the statement, because Jesus doesn't want his mission or his kingdom to be defined by speculation. So he says, when he overhears the question, he says this, he says, Is, uh, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. But I have come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but the sinners. I have come not to call the righteous, but the, but the sinners. The kingdom of God, as we look throughout Mark, is an announcement to everyone that we are all invited to the table. That we are all invited to be embraced by Jesus. Jesus. The kingdom of God is defined by Jesus as good news. Some of you need to hear this for the first time. The message of the kingdom is God embraces you as you are and not as you should be. And you need to just sit with that. And maybe listen to this. I just want to read something. The table in this is an invitation. And, and you guys, I, I've prepared something this morning um, that I feel like many of us need to hear. And so this is from my heart. The table, the table is an invitation to anyone and everyone. All who are in, all are in, and all are welcome to dine. This is for the helpless, for the, those that have no hope, for the outcasts that have been created by the church, and by the outcasts of our society created by us. Those who are the most serious of kinds. This is for the flunkouts and the dropouts. The kingdom of God is for the burnouts and the broken and the broke. For the drug addicts, the divorced, the HIV positive, the herpes ridden. The kingdom of God is for the brain damaged, the incurably ill, for the barren, for the pregnant too many times, the pregnant at the wrong time. This is for the overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployable, and the unemployed. This is for the swindled, the shoved aside, the left aside, the replaced, the incompetent, and the stupid. This is for the emotionally starved and the emotionally dead. The kingdom of God is for the bigoted, the murderers, the child molesters, the brutals, the drug lords, the terrorists, the perverted, the raging alcoholics, the overconsumerists, the incredibly ugly, the dumb, the ignorant, the starving, the filled, the filthy, and the filthy rich. The kingdom of God is for everyone. So starting with the first place, 
is that we are all invited to dine with Jesus. And this is good news. But it doesn't stop there. Do you really believe that the kingdom of God is at hand? Do you believe that this kingdom, this kingdom is at hand? How are you participating in that? What have we done to this message? I'm going to speak to those of you that are brothers and sisters that have already accepted this invitation. And some of you, let this go off of your ears, but for some of you, listen carefully. I think this is what we've done. We have celebrated our invitations. We have dined in the presence of of God himself at the table of fellowship. We have had seconds and thirds, and we have forgotten the most important part of our invitation. We are called to invite others. That we are supposed to invite others. We don't throw parties like this anymore with sinners present. We, we invite the elite. We invite our kind, our social networks, those that look similar to us, those that we have reduced to the communities of comfortable, acceptable, even tolerable, those that will invite us back or seem as though they just might have something for us. We have turned our parties to holy huddles rather than provocative invitations for the shouldn'ts, wouldn'ts, and couldn'ts, for the people that shouldn't, couldn't, and wouldn't even dream about eating with the Messiah himself. The God of this universe, the lover of our souls, we have forgotten how to throw parties. We've reduced our invite to our safety, to the insecurity of what people might think. We have escaped the provocative call to dine with the prostitutes of the world, to dance with the drug lords of society, to, d- to eat with the sinners and tax collectors of our culture, the worst of the worst, as an example of God's extreme embrace of all sorts of people. We might go out to visit them in the shelters, but we'll never invite them home. Many of us leave this thing called evangelism to the church. We say, hey, I pay my tithes, I show up on Sunday, I set up. But I'll let Billy Graham do the evangelism thing. Brothers and sisters, if you've been invited, you've been called to spread the good news. The message of the kingdom is that we participate by sitting down with people of the land to welcome them and love them. This isn't about a mission project. This is about sharing what God has done for you. Evangelism is not setting up a soapbox to convince people that God's real. Evangelism is sharing what's in your heart. That if indeed Jesus has resurrected from the dead, that his life, his ministry, his words mean something, it changes everything. And if we don't have the grace or or the, the boldness to simply share ourselves, share our love, share our stories, then we're failing miserably. The gospel is outrageous, it's compelling, it's provocative, it's serious. And we allow our our comfort to get in the way. Jesus didn't convert the masses, he dined with his disciples. We have become religious in the worst sense. We've distanced ourselves, our churches, our families, our communities. We've separated from the people 
and we've neglected the fellowships that we've been invited to. You know, it's really sad when the outside, those that are unchristian, the non-Christians, when they were asked in a recent study, what is your view of Christianity? What is your view of Christians? You know that when the top three answers of non-Christians speaking about Christians are anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical, that we have blown our salty task of being light and darkness. Where religion has said, this is what it takes to get in, Jesus sits down and says, please pass the salt. I just wonder if some of us have just neglected the responsibility of our invitation. And brothers and sisters, guys, this has nothing to do with you serving the garden or asking for money. This has everything to do with us being the church for the sake of the world. Go somewhere else if you don't like this message. We need to get this more than ever before. And I'm the first to say that I don't get it. And so I just want to confess something today. I want to confess that I hate the fact that our life groups have to be inclusive. That as a body, we've wrestled with this as a leadership and said our life groups have to be open for everyone to join. I I hate it. I'll be the first to admit it. I would prefer the cozy couples that we have in our group. They're amazing. I love them. But the fact that we have to open up our group and give ourselves away, that is so hard, and I don't want to do it. I'd rather start my own thing all over again. I'll confess something even greater than that. Last week, uh, this message has been stirring in my soul for two weeks, and it was just a different type of message, and I was running and I was praying. And I said, God, how am I doing on this message? And he said, well, what's the greatest commandment? I said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, or mind, one of those. I forget the greatest commandment. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, how are you doing on that? And I said, I don't know. And then it came up to my mind. So I'll just say, share this with you. I've been in my apartment for two years and in one month. And uh, I've met most of my neighbors. They've come and go. They've come and gone. And then uh, for the last six months or so, apparently one of the kids that lives next door in the, in the other complex has come to the vocal age of yelling. And you laugh, and I laugh. My wife and I wake up almost every day off to screaming. And it's unbearable. Finally, out of frustration, I walk over, and I just knocked on the door. And I say to this guy who I've never met in my entire life for two years of being a, God, a guy who wants to follow Jesus with his life but has yet to meet his neighbor, can you please keep your kid more quiet? I didn't say it like that. I was like, if you could, maybe just shut the window. And he says, I'll do my best. And I walked away and didn't think twice until that run. And I'm running. And God says, how are you doing with that neighbor? When the first time a Christian meets his neighbor is to tell him to keep his son quiet, we've blown it. So I'll be the first to admit, I don't get this. 
but I'll be the first to admit that I really want Jesus. I really want to obey him. Oh, I know this is a heavy one, but I just think, as I diagnose this in myself, maybe it's because some of us worship false gods. We worship the God of wealth, comfort, security, money. We worship the God of self and pleasure and what's comfortable and easy. And I think there's an even worse God that's coming up to my, my understanding. It's the God of time. That busy has become the Lord we all worship with thanksgiving. We, we ascribe worth to people who say, I have so much to do, to do today, I'm too busy for that. What have we done if we don't have time for our neighbors? When we have this, cal- and I'm the first to admit, calendar best friends two weeks away. Let alone to in- initiate the mission that God has for us where we are by simply saying, come over for dinner. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there, there your heart will be. I think if he was today, in our time, you'd say, where your time is spent, there your heart will be. How are you guys doing on that? When was the last time you hung out with a prostitute? I don't say this in a joking way. When was the last time you made a point to embrace the community that needs more embracing than ever before in our city? You could put your you know, personality, passion, gifting, calling on the side and just say, when was the last time you dined with the the sinners of our world? Jesus came to call not the righteous, but the unrighteous. I want to close with this story from Tony Campolo. He wrote a book called The Kingdom of God is a Party. Kingdom of God is a Party. It says this, In chapter 1, I'm going to summarize it. He tells uh, a a story of a trip he took to Honolulu in the mid-80s. Having crossed far too many time zones from Philadelphia to Hawaii, he found himself awake and needing breakfast at 3.30 a.m. local time. He ended up at a greasy, divey place ordering a donut and a coffee while consuming this wholesome meal, enjoying his breakfast. In walks in eight or nine prostitutes. The place was small and Tony was surrounded and he would have done what most of us did, which is get out of, the, out of there. But then he overheard someone say, tomorrow's my birthday. I'll be 39. One of her friends tears into her and says, so what do you want me to do about it? You want me to throw a party and bake you a cake, sing happy birthday? The first shot back, come on. Why do you have to be so mean? I'm just telling you, you don't have to put me down. I don't want anything. I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should you give me one? Why should I have one now? I'm just saying. Tony hangs around until they leave, and then he asks the guy who runs the place, um, if those people come in there every night, the guy said they do. So Tony asked if he could throw a party for this prostitute on her birthday the next night. The couple gets excited, and they make the arrangements. Tony comes in early the next uh, day at the diner. He decorates. The chef bakes a cake. Someone gets the word out on the street. And this is how Tony describes the scene. By 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in that place. It was wall-to-wall with prostitutes. And me, at 3.30, on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in comes Agnes and her friend. 
I had everybody ready. After all, I was kind of the MC of the affair. When they came in, and um, we all screamed, Happy birthday! Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned and so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm and, and to steady her. As she was led to one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. As we came to the end of our singing with happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes were moistened. Then when the cake was carried out, with all the candles on it, she lost it. She openly cried. She couldn't blow out the candles. She couldn't cut the cake. In fact, she was so overwhelmed, she asked if she could just keep the cake for a little bit. The owner said, of course, it's yours, go ahead. And so Agnes picked up the cake as if it was the most precious thing imaginable and walked it to her house. The crowd was stunned with silence. Not knowing what else to do, Tony Campolo said, hey, why don't we pray? And he did. They prayed about Agnes. They prayed for her salvation, for God um, to turn her life around. And at the end, the owner turned to him with a trace of hostility in his voice. And he said, you never told me that you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And Tony replied, I belong to the church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And the owner replied, no, you don't. There ain't no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. Yep, I'd join a church like that. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear other messages from The Garden, or if you would like to find out more about The Garden Church, check out our website at thegardenlb.org. Hearts are open.
your spirit, oh God. 